The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. All right. Welcome to the show. Uh Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, um, alongside Eric Lear today. Um, our our infamous uh, CEO is actually in a meeting today and couldn't make the show. Uh, so Eric agreed to work with me today on, on a broadcast. Um, this show is designed to help you make smart decisions with your money. We're going to talk about some items today. Hopefully, uh, give you some in, insights as to some smart financial planning decisions and also interlace in some uh, discussions about investments and other, other things as well. Um, if you'd like to reach us during the show, feel free to, to give us a call. We can be reached at 866-472-5790 or via email as well at contact at empiradio.com. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Always great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I think we're going to kick off today just talking about um, uh, something I was d- discussing with some clients or some rather some, uh, some prospects down in Tacoma yesterday. Okay. As you know, we've been doing this... Uh, uh, five, four, five, six, or more secrets to retirement success. Uh, who knows what day of the week it is? Uh, but uh, yesterday we kind of did a condensed version of uh, two things. We brought together an, a, a more a, an elaboration on the investment strategy that we utilize here at Empirical, and uh, coincided that with some, I think, smart financial planning topics. Some things we've talked about on the show before: right. Roth conversions, asset placement, and then also the uh, tax-free capital gains, which is very nice. And uh, but we did go into more detail than we typically do in a, in a client presentation with regards to our uh, investment philosophy, and uh, uh, the, the section was called enhanced indexing, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I kind of just went through a few of the things and kind of made the case for indexing itself, which we think is a pretty good idea. Absolutely, you know, generally uh, r- relative to the traditional approach out there on Wall Street, which is either some form of stock picking or market timing. Mm-hmm. basically. And basically what, what we did is this. We went through a couple of slides highlighting some of the return differences over different periods uh, with index funds relative to some traditionally managed funds. And one of those happens to be here in front of me. I'll just briefly talk about it and we can kind of dive into the rest of the, the, the show here. Um, looking at, say, for example, returns from 19... This, is, this goes back a ways, but it's interesting to me that the data from 40 years ago, 20 years ago, reaches the same conclusion as the data that's been done recently on these topics, which is that indexing is really the way to go relative to the traditional approach. So the traditional guys aren't getting any better? <laughs> you would, no. With all the, more, all, all the information out there, the, the enhanced uh, flow of information over the last 50 years, guess what? It really hasn't added up to better returns for those types of investors, unfortunately. So 
kind of counterintuitive, you think, right? That the information flows so freely now that it's, it's readily available on mm-hmm. the on the intraweb, or, or wherever else you have to get <laughs> information super, super highway. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but no, lo and behold, the returns uh, don't don't aren't much different relative to the market uh, as they were from studies past. Interesting. Yeah, and one of the things here, I just I'll go over briefly. This this tracks uh, the Forbes Honor Roll. I guess the, it, Forbes, you know, the magazine, right? Money magazine. Uh, does an annual thing. At least they used to. I don't believe they do this anymore. And the reason may become apparent here shortly. Uh, that they they have the say. If you made the Forbes honor roll, they'll, they'll you obviously had to have pretty good returns for a period of time. Um, but they compared just these honor roll funds versus just the S and P index over a meaningful period of time, nineteen seventy three through nineteen ninety eight. So many many years. Yeah, it's a good sample period. Though. Yeah, it isn't like it's one year, two years, or just three years, or cherry picked or anything. Like that. Just a long segment of years. And it turns out that the Forbes Honor Roll funds returned at 19, I'm sorry, 13.6% over that entire period you know, on an annualized basis. But during that same period, guess what the S&P did? How much? Well, 14.3. Ooh. So, you know, they lost to this, just the S&P. And these are supposed to be the best of the best funds, right? Right. You don't make the Forbes Honor Roll by having crummy returns. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. And then uh, guess what the small cap index did over that same period? How much? And I'm hiding this from you. It wasn't pre. <laughs> we didn't talk about this in advance, so I'm throwing it at him. Uh, 16.3% over the same period. So about a 3% difference, actually, from the small cap stock index relative to the Forbes honor roll over that period of time. And, you know, when are you most likely to have purchased you know, the, the stocks or the funds in the Forbes honor roll? Probably right after they went up. Yeah. That's how they got on the list, and that's when you bought them, and then subsequently they underperformed. And just like the, the Morningstar. Five stars, people go out and buy the five star ratings, but even though Morningstar themselves will tell you this is how they just did, this is not, this is, has no indication of how they're going to do in the future. That's true, right? It's exactly how that works. Um, and that's why they have that disclosure, right? Mm-hmm. You know, past performance is unindicative of future results. It's never more true than with a traditional, <laughs> traditional fund than anything else, right? Right. So I, I agree with that. Um, also, a couple of other slides just talking about the types of things that can affect um, uh, results within. A traditional funds versus index funds, and one of those things is, is turnover. You know, how often is the fund trading stocks inside the fund? Right. So, the, and they actually, we have another study I'm looking at right now. I'm hiding it for, again from Eric. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on over there. <laughs> exactly. Um, they did a sample period from 1986 through to the year 2000. So, again, a, a substantially long period of time. And here they have the very they ranked them in terms of the, the very highest turnover funds. How did how did they perform? Versus the lowest turnover funds, how did they perform? And it turns out that the very uh, lowest turnover funds did the, actually did the best over this period, which is real, no real surprise. Right. You know, the less trading going on inside the fund, um, the less you're having to pay the bid and ask spread with the stocks and all that stuff. Disregarding taxes, mm-hmm. which is also another problem with high turnover. And that's not even that didn't show up in these numbers, right? Yeah, no, it doesn't account for taxes. Um, so the very highest turnover funds had a return over this period, and we have thirteen percent which doesn't seem bad. It seems like a pretty solid return. It does. But over that period of time, um, boy, the, I know the market was doing fairly well. But the, high, the, the lowest turnover funds actually returned 15%. And over, what, what was it, 15, 16 yep. years? That's, that adds up to be quite a bit. Yeah. And then again, it isn't, it isn't, it's funny. It isn't in any one year that it matters. What matters is over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And most people, when they're investing, how long is their time horizon? You know, Simon, for you, how long will you be investing as an example? Simon's our producer here on the show. Yeah, 40, 50 years, right? I mean, me too. I'm in the same boat. I, I meet with folks who are, are nearing retirement, uh, 65-ish, 60 years old, 
And I asked them, well, how long will you be investing? Well, I don't have a long time, they say. And, and the truth is that they, they themselves have about 30 years probably. You know, If you're married at 60 years old, you can expect that, boy, one of you is going to make it to, to 90 years old. That's, that's the, the statistical odds of that happening. That's a sufficiently long period of time. Sure. Yeah, well, and, and even if you, you, don't have a, you, know, you don't have 50, 60 years, you still, I mean, chasing the hottest mutual funds is, is never a good strategy. Yeah, and that's actually a good segue to my next slide. I'm going to comment in. Here's another study that tracks exactly that. So let's say you have a top-performing top mutual fund. So you've identified the fund that does well, and you go ahead and buy that fund. What are the odds of that, that same fund repeating itself as a top performer the next year? It's not very good, I might, might mention. So this study t- tracks, again, a, a good sample of time, 1997 through 2011. Many years. Some mm-hmm. good years and some bad years in there. Um, it turns out that on average, over that period, only 14% of the, fu- of the funds that had a top performer repeated the very next year. Wow. So you're a top performer one time, and then more likely than not, you're not a top, top performer again the next year. And what's interesting, I think, is that, boy, if you could continue that, I wish they did. Maybe we can do this. Uh, perhaps, uh, maybe you can't spearhead this, I'm not sure. How do, you, how do you, where does, so the people that repeated two times, did they repeat again the third year? What, what's the chances of that happening? After four years, what are the odds that, you know, how, off, how many more repeated at the four years or repeated after five years? Pretty soon you basically get to zero, I'm sure. Right. That's how that works. And then you would have been just better off owning the index fund the whole time, mm-hmm. which really is the greater point, right? Yeah. It isn't any one year that you, the index is going to win. It's just that over time, it's more and more and more likely to occur, basically. Yeah. And, of course, one of the big issues with these funds is, is not only do they not outperform, but they're going to charge you so much more. Yeah, than an index fund. That's true. You know, I was looking at we were looking at um, a couple of funds the other day that were uh, S and P index funds, okay. so funds that just track the S and P. Um, and so, the, I, I guess I should I should clarify this is this is these are there are some index funds that are better than others. I'm, I guess I'm sort of segueing, but sure. These particular index funds tracking the S and P, uh, they were charging about one and a half percent expense ratio. With a one percent load, a level load, which mean, which is uh, means it's charged every year. Wow! So, two and a half percent for an S and P index fund. Wait, are you serious? I am serious. That's an outrage. I wish I wasn't. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, I know one of the S and P funds we use, the index fund, yeah. charges four basis points. Is there any load with that? There is no load. Is there any commission to buy it or sell it? There is not. Oh wow. So it really is <laughs> money in the bank, basically. In that respect. Mm-hmm. Four basis points versus 200 basis points, in essence. 250 basis points. 250. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, I can't believe that type of thing actually exists still. It really kind of, I don't know, almost blows my mind. Yeah. And it's just, I, I think that um, a lot of investors aren't necessarily aware that they have these choices. Right. Um, you know, sometimes that they'll, they'll hire money managers that will put them into these things into funds like this yeah. because they get large commissions. That really can be the only motivation because you, yeah. you know that the person who is selling the fund knows the, co- knows the compensation structure, right? Mm-hmm. The only th- way that you can possibly understand that is that well, the, their, their motivation is something other than doing what's best for the client in that, in that, that respect. Mm-hmm. You know, you're buying an index fund but then charging 2.5% for it, it seems kind of... Uh, I'm positive the client does not know yeah. about that, right? Yeah, I, I can't imagine any reason why the, any justification for that except for the fact that, that the person who puts you in that fund is going to get a nice, hefty paycheck. Wow. Yeah, that's... I agree. I totally agree with that. Wow. Oh. 
So that's interesting. So I have one more one more slide here. We I mean we can we can talk about briefly, and it just talks about um, you know in this recent period, the last say twelve years or so, last ten years, it's been a pretty tumultuous time in the marketplace. I'd say so. It began the two thousands with the, the bursting of the tech bubble, and then midway through the decade, a little after that, we had the, the financial collapse, real estate collapse, um, tumultuous markets during this entire you know, period of time, and a lot of folks might think, well, boy, managers who are doing the traditional approach, either stock picking or, or market timing approach, really can really shine in times like this, right? Mm-hmm. If, now, now is when they're going to earn their money, earn their extra fees associated with the funds that they're running relative to index funds because they're going to get me out of the market, help me protect myself from some of this downside that exists out there. Yeah, they're, they're going to use their sophisticated forecasting, and they're going to see this stuff coming. Right, exactly. That's, that's, that's the pitch anyway. Yeah. So I have some numbers on this, and then we can actually see the, see the results. Um, this is annual, again, annualized data ending July 31st, 2012. So it's, well, it's about a year old, but it covers the previous basically 10 years. And this is all uh, data from Morningstar Direct, which is the Morningstar program that we have here at the, the office. Uh, basically looking at traditional large-cap funds over the entire period, we turned 5.4%. And I'm defining traditional as non-index funds. Right. right. And the S&P index did a 6.3%. Hmm. So about a percent better during that entire period of time. Uh, looking at small-cap stocks, looking at the, the traditional small-cap funds in Morningstar over that period, performed 7.9%. And the S&P 600 small cap index did 9.5%. Oh, so, so much for the uh, <laughs> getting out of the way of the crisis. Huh? <laughs> exactly right. And then looking at international stocks here, uh, again, the traditional, the stock pickers and market timers, those types of funds, did 5.7%. And this, the international large cap index, did 6.8%. So we're not even talking about international small cap value or mm-hmm. international small company funds or any of that stuff. Just the plain vanilla large cap international index did about a percent better than your traditional fund in that category. Uh, this was also, here's emerging markets next. Uh, the traditional um, sort of uh, uh, stock picking market timing funds in the emerging market area performed at 13.4% for that entire period. And looking at just the, uh, the emerging market index, that did 16% over that period of time. Wow. Those are annual returns. Yeah. So you know what? I, this brings up a good point to me anyway that uh, you know, if I'm investing in the S&P 500 or those still stocks in general, not necessarily in the index, but trying to identify stocks in the S&P, even among the S&P, that are going to be the ones to own and outperform the S&P 500 index, I, I wouldn't even care, frankly, if you, you did beat the index by 1% or 2%, let's say. I mean, and that would be a phenomenal feat, by the way. You'd Absolutely. Be, you'd be carried around uh, on people's shoulders, and you'd have big parties, and you'd be on the cover of magazines if that happened. Mm-hmm. But really, all I had to do was own something else like small cap stocks, for example, and I would have beat the index S&P. Or I would have beaten, I could have had money, some money in emerging markets over that 10-year period of time and crushed the S&P. About, about three times. Yeah, over, yeah. right? So that's where I think this, uh, the other thing is we, we tend to focus on the S&P or just a specific part of the market where really the, the true free lunch out there, in my mind, is global diversification. Well, and what's interesting to me about all that is that you gave several examples and from very different time periods. Yeah, with some stuff from the seventies to the nineties, from the eighties to two thousand, the last decade, and the same thing holds true in every period. That's right. In every period, at least uh, that we covered, you know, from the seventies on, and and this this holds true back to as far as we have data, you're better off going with the the cheap indexing funds. That's exactly I mean, right. Basically, every time over any any sort of long time horizon, you're going to be better off with that strategy. Right. 
And that isn't to say that you should only own one index. I think part of, the, again, part of the magic is owning a variety of different types of asset classes. But those should be index mm-hmm. is the main point. Some people are confused getting that message with just indexing and owning one fund. That's not true. You need to have lots of different asset classes as well. Uh, we're about ready here to take a break. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute. And uh, thanks for joining us. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Did you know that at the root of every business problem lies a communication issue? Communication Nation, a show that brings effective business communication practices to the masses, addresses a number of topics and talking points that impact your professional development, as well as business productivity and profitability. Host Jill Schiffelbein makes the theoretical tangible. Tune in each Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be ready to become a better communicator with Communication Nation. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside today, uh, Eric Lear. Thanks again for joining us today, Eric. I appreciate it. Always great to be here in uh, sunny Seattle. Indeed, with some good weather out there the last couple of days, and hopefully it continues for a little while. Yeah, it's gorgeous right now. No doubt. Um, before the break, we were just talking about a couple of different, um, I guess I'd call them studies, that were, were conducted, talking about the difference in returns between the traditional approach uh, for investing, which is, again, sort of market timing or, or stock selection strategies versus just owning a, an index in a particular category. And I wanted to speak next a little bit more to the ideas of these studies. Now, we've just went over three or four of them uh, here just in the last couple of minutes uh, on the previous section. But I wanted to point out that that isn't the only evidence out there. Oh, yeah? There's, there's actually a, a – when we hear – and I think people have a way of discounting this when they hear the word studies. Well, you can really make a study to prove anything you want sure. these days, right? And I guess that's sadly true, I suppose, in a way. Um, but the studies we're referring to when we look at how, how to make better investment decisions um, are really the types of things that you can, in my view anyway, take to the bank. It isn't like it's some sales literature or some sales um, 
information that behind the scenes, all they're really trying to do is sell me something. Sell, sell, sell. No, yeah, right. It's not like that. In fact, I think it's more akin to New York, I'm sure we all have heard of this, the, the New England Journal of Medicine as an example, right? That's a very prestigious journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably the most well-known uh, medical journal in the United States and maybe the world, I'm guessing. Um, who do you, what types of people do you think actually are able to get things published in that prestigious medical journal? Any idea? Uh, my guess would be academics. Probably so. Maybe experts in the field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe experts who, let's say, they're maybe studying, uh, doing cancer research or right. they're studying research on, on vaccinations or other things. I mean, me, uh, take myself as an example, I don't have any knowledge of anything regarding medical, right? I know if I have a cold or not, which I kind of do now, <laughs> but I don't know anything else about that. It's not my area of expertise, right. and I haven't, I haven't taken a lifetime to, to figure out how all that stuff works. Um, um, I, I spent my time doing investments and financial planning and learning finance, and that's, that's kind of what I'm an expert at. Um, so these folks, though, that, that produce these, these articles or produce these studies, um, is it just simply they have to write it, and because they're an expert, they get to put it in the magazine? How do, how, what do you think that is the answer to that question? Well, that'd be nice, but that's not generally how a prestigious journal works. No, it isn't at all, right? And, and, and then how it works is this. They, the publishers of the journal, they have this, what they call, peer-reviewed process. And it doesn't sound like much, but that being peer-reviewed means this, basically. They take the, the published article or the published study that's been conducted by a professional, a person who's an expert in their field, um, oftentimes PhDs, academics, people have been doing it for, for decades and decades and decades, People who really know their stuff, they take that information and then they don't just go ahead and publish it, and they don't just go through it and, and check for grammatical spelling errors. That isn't what they're doing. What they're doing is they take it to a panel of other experts in the same field. So, for example, if, if uh, Eric, you're writing a, a study and you're uh, uh, maybe looking at um, some type of special cancer research or something, right? Mm-hmm. You you conducted a study and you had the trials and the whole thing, you actually gave that to the, the publisher, and that publisher then in turn gives it to a panel of experts who are also, guess what, experts in what you're trying to do in, in your specific area of expertise. And they go through, and they're very rigorous about the evaluation. to look at the, the, the type of research that was conducted, the, the methodology that, that you used. They'll check and see if the conclusions that reached are reasonable. Uh, they'll actually try to poke holes in what you did. Right? They'll come back to you and say, hey, what about this? How did you handle this? You know? And again, try to disprove basically what you're, what you're stating in there. Right. After all that is said and done, and that usually takes some time, sometimes years. Years, in fact. years. Yeah. This is something that happens like over, overnight. Like if, you, if you're a, 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 a person who's writing articles for, say, Forbes magazine or Money magazine, do you think it's the same process, the same rigorous process involved? Well, no. Right. Like you write something in the morning, it's published by the afternoon. It very well could be. And, and there they really are checking for, well, geez, the grammatically correct is spelling. Well, that's good. Then it's ready to go. There's no in-depth research to say, well, what's the substance of this, this message here? Is it, is it legitimate? And what purpose does it serve, right? They're not interested in much of that. They're really interested in just making, making good copy, basically. So, again, going back to the peer-reviewed idea, um, it's the same rigorous process that, that uh, happens in the, the areas of finance and investing, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there are tons of, or several actually, very prestigious financial journals that have been around for, for many decades now. Right. That when they publish articles written by professionals and experts in the field, you can be sure that they are peer-reviewed. They're, they're, they're the best of the best. Right. And the conclusions reached by those studies, you, again, you can take to the bank. Because they don't have an axe to grind. They're trying to figure out how things work. And in fact, that's how knowledge is advanced through time anyway. You know, have an expert go take, take a certain... Um, segment or 
make a certain point, and then it, once that person uh, is able, able to establish that as fact, well, then other researchers can build on that. And over time, that's how you get knowledge, basically. That's how the world evolves uh, from, from the Enlightenment through today. That's how that's, that, that peer review process has been critical to advancement of scientific knowledge, basically. Right. So that's, uh, that's kind of how I view this stuff. And, and interestingly enough, all the studies that have been done over the last, I don't know, 55 years, something like that, since Terry Markowitz first published his in, in 1952, um, which, by the way, was published in the Journal of Finance in 1952, uh, his, his article, famous to all of us in the investment world, was uh, Portfolio Selection. Um, basically showed that diversification is the way to go. But in, in essence, all those since then have, have proven one thing, and that is that indexing is really the best approach. That's the, the, the hallmark uh, and what you can take to the bank, in my view, of, of the message between all of those studies and why it's so meaningful and why it should be something that we oh, believe, not just we, well, I think we can, it can be manipulated for any purpose that we want. This type of stuff isn't like that, in my view. Right. Well, and just a little more on the, the peer-reviewed process. Um, from my experience in economics and in finance, the process to get something published is so much longer than what people realize. You, uh, you know, you're a professor, you're a researcher, you, you write a paper, you'll present it to your colleagues, you'll do seminar rounds. You know, this, this is a process that can take a 12 months, maybe longer. Mm-hmm. Then you'll submit it to these journals. They'll have usually two or three people... Uh, you know, review it. Uh, these will all be double blind. You know, no one's no one knows who's reviewing their paper or whose paper they're reviewing. So you can't get by on on you know strength of your name, connections, and so forth. Right? Yeah, it gets you get. Uh, generally, you get what's called a revise and resubmit, which mm-hmm. is where the reviewers will send you back your your paper with comments. You'll go through and and make those changes. You'll go do the seminar rounds again, uh, get get more feedback. Then you'll submit. You'll resubmit it. And if it's if everyone's happy at that point, then you'll get published. But I mean that this process can take <laughs> two, three, four years. Right. And uh, and I think one of the the important things that you mentioned is that the the motivation for these these uh, professors, these researchers who are doing this is they're not trying to sell something. Right. It'd be a very long developed sales process. Yeah. If they were, uh, they're they're doing it to. To forward the field, right? They right. want they want to make their. I mean, I won't I won't say it's all, it's all altruistic. Everyone, of course, wants to make their their mark on on research, right? But uh, it, it's it's not gimmicky and it's not an easy process. So for for all of these studies to have essentially the same outcome mm-hmm. after getting through this rigorous process, I think really really speaks to how meaningful this conclusion is. I agree. That's an excellent way of saying it. Great. Yeah, so that's the type of stuff that we look at here at Empirical. We, that's how we get our name, right? Empirical. We're looking at the empirical evidence. Well, what does the empirical evidence suggest about how best to invest? And it is that indexing itself is really the way to go relative to the more traditional approach. Right. And that, that sort of segues uh, nicely to our my next uh, point of discussion. Okay. Um, which happens to deal with – so we, just let me summarize. What we, we've, we've included that – We've done a couple of studies, and we've talked about the peer review process, that indexing is, is basically the way to go relative to other things. So does that mean you should just go out and buy an index fund? And, of course, the answer really is probably not. Certainly not one. You need multiple, probably, multiple asset classes. That's the best way to go. But is there anything better, anything else you can do? So once you've identified that indexing is good, well, should you just then call it quits and say, hey, that's it? Well, actually, no. There are some other things you can do, um, and there are some inherent weaknesses 
in fact, in, in index, indexing that have uh, come to our attention certainly over the last many years of doing this. And it kind of leads into what I'm calling now enhanced indexing. Better than regular indexing? Sounds, sounds pretty good, right? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, hang on a second, Ethan. So let me get this straight. I, I can take an index and I can just enhance it. That makes it better, right? Absolutely. It's just like that. Well, it's not exactly that easy, but it's, it's kind of like that, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of neat. I mean, you automatically understand from the name what it kind of is. And in fact, there are a couple of things that enhance it. There are some enhanced, enhanced index uh, fund companies out there. And the, the best one, the biggest one I know of is, is called Dimensional or DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors. Um, in fact, they're not a really a household name these days, but uh, they are the eighth largest mutual fund company in the world. And we tend to use uh, many of their uh, investment funds in our practice. Not exclusively, we do use other funds as well. But there are certain areas in which they really provide some additional oomph within, inside each of, the, uh, of some special asset classes that we include in portfolios. All right. And the essence of what they do basically is this. They, they, they seek to outperform the conventional indexes by doing a couple different things. One of those is targeting unique asset classes themselves. So take an example of emerging markets. Um, you can buy the plain vanilla emerging market fund, but you can't really go buy, or rather, emerging market fund index, I should say, which is probably a good idea. In fact, we have one of those in our portfolio. You mean you just mentioned 16% return over yeah. the last decade or so? Yeah, and, and in July uh, 31st, 2012, right? Oh. Exactly. So definitely worthy of inclusion. Um, but here's the thing. That doesn't include specifically emerging market value stocks, which did actually did even better over that same period, or emerging market small cap stocks. There aren't generally indexes for those sort of nuance or, or uh, more unique, I would say, asset classes. So there isn't really one. Um, so they, that's where DFA kind of steps in, and they have some investment mutual funds that cover those areas that are, are lacking in terms of uh, their exposure to the, from the rest of the market. So that's one thing they try to do. Um, they also have created these unique investment vehicles that improve upon traditional index performance. And we're going to talk a little bit about that here today, coming up here next. And then most, probably, I don't know if it's most important, but certainly next in terms of importance, they also avoid the index fund reconstitution problems. And there are a few problems with index fund reconstitution that basically create drag on the portfolio performance. That doesn't really need to be there, in yeah. essence. And, and one more thing about the DFA funds that I don't think uh, necessarily people realize is they do have some of the, uh, the lowest expenses out there as well. Yeah, that's true, right? I mean, it wouldn't be great to have these funds that perform better than indexes over time just get eaten away by fees. Right. Uh, so indeed, they have, they have very much index-like uh, costs associated with them. Uh, one of the unique things is they are only available to advisors like us who've, who've adopted that, that strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's here's a couple of fundamental things in terms of building blocks for um, for portfolios. Specifically, um, and we've covered this actually before on the show. We call it the, the size effect. So we know very well now that uh, large companies in general tend to underperform small companies in general. In fact, I have a real nice, real fancy chart that only I can see at the moment because it is radio. Um, that talks about the, the, the breakdown of returns based on company size for the U.S. stock market from 1926 through 2012. And I know we're coming up here on a break, so maybe we'll take the break first and dive right back into this when we get back. That sounds good. Thanks for joining us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. Your your co-host here, Ethan Broga, uh, alongside Eric Lear. And Eric, I don't mean to keep on saying emphasizing your last name. I just want to make sure I get it right. That's okay. I don't mind at all. <laughs> all right, it's kind of like the, the Learjet, as you explained to me a, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So before, before the break, we we're just talking about this idea of the uh, the peer reviewed process, and just to summarize for for uh, everybody here, and how that process really is how knowledge is gained in, in essence. And how you can trust the results of the peer-reviewed process better than you can trust just anything floating around, say, in, in a regular publication like Money Magazine or Forbes or in, in those sorts of things. Or certainly anything put out by a fund company with, with an incentive. <laughs> right, right. Yes, exactly right. Uh, and, and that's, I think, that, again, I said before, say it again, you can take that type of information to the bank, in, in my view. And we and definitely, we have in a way. I mean, we, we embrace the, the empirical academic research that's done by independent third parties over many decades that conclude effectively that indexing is the way to go. So now we're talking about, well, is there anything you can do on top of indexing? Anything, anything, should you just index or is there something else you can do? And um, Indeed, there are some flaws with indexing. It's not a perfect situation. And uh, we'll discuss some of those flaws here shortly. Um, but just to take a step back from that piece and help everybody, I think, get on the same pages, what, what types of things drive differences of portfolio returns in and among diversified portfolios. And we know, Eric, uh, very well that one of those things is company size. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we just hit a slide earlier in our first segment that showed over the, the 10-year period that, uh, that the S&P, I think, returned something like 5.6%, 5.3%. And just the small cap index over that same period did about 2% higher. Yeah. And just, just to clarify really quickly, when you say company size, you're referring to market capitalization. Yes, exactly right. Right, so large companies like uh, Microsoft or Exxon, uh, Apple, th- those are very, very large companies. 
right. relative to, say, other companies that we probably haven't heard of that are, in terms of their market capitalization, are infinitesimally small compared to those. Right. I mean, though, they're still very big numbers. Yes, that's true. I wouldn't say they're, and they're, they're publicly traded companies all, all the time. So right. they are large companies by, by pure dollars. You know, if mm. they're market cap of a billion, that's a lot. But compared to, to, to Microsoft, which is $250 billion, this is not a lot compared to that, mm-hmm. as an example. So I wanted to explain it really, really shortly here, just the, the difference in returns between large and small. And if you took the, the mar- U.S. market capitalization, so all the stocks in, in the U.S. stock market uh, over a uh, period of 1926 through 2012, and broke down the returns by company size. You had the largest 10% of companies versus the smallest 10% of companies. And you looked at the, a- the annual return for each of them as a group, you'd find that uh, the largest 10% of companies returned 10.88%. That's not bad for not bad, right? 80 years. <laughs> not bad at all. But venture guess as to the smallest company performance. Now, you've probably seen the slide, so it might be cheating to ask you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And what was large cap? Large, large had, had returned 10.8%. I'm going to say 14%. <laughs> not a bad guess. Not a bad guess. Actually, the smallest of the small company stocks over that period of time did 20.5%. Wow. So staggeringly, almost double the return, right? And effectively, if you're looking at the chart like I am, you can see everything in between. The, the smaller the companies get, the higher their average return over time. So this very clearly illustrates the relationship between company size, market capitalization, and return. That's the main tenet here. And it turns out that the largest 20% of companies basically compile the S&P 500. So they're the largest of the large companies, right? And just to compare that, you have the Russell 2000 Index, which actually focuses on uh, the bottom, the, uh, I guess it would be six through nine, in essence, mm-hmm. deciles. Yeah, to explain, the, the Russell 1000, which is Russell's large cap index, takes the 1,000 biggest stocks by okay. market capitalization. The Russell 2000 takes the next 2,000. Right, okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. That makes good sense. Interestingly enough, though, the Russell 2000, because we're going to talk about small company stocks here just briefly, um, doesn't include the smallest of the small. Interesting. So they don't include the, the smallest 10% of companies in that Russell 2000 index. And why is that? That's a very good question. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit right now, actually. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's why we're here. Uh, whereas the, the, DFA comp- the DFA Enhanced Small Company Index actually does. Um, the DFSTX is the mutual fund symbol if you're interested in that, in that at all. Um, they actually have in that fund 2,264 stocks, and uh, they, they do include some of the smallest of the small in that particular fund. Um, but the reason why the Russell 2000 index doesn't include exposure to that, even though it has the highest returns, and I'm sure Russell's aware of this, they, they're, right, they're bright guys over there. They got lots of money, and they're pretty bright guys, so I'm not saying that they're not at all. But they have to do other things. They have to have a reason for it. And I think one of the reasons it has to do with this is that, you know, the name Russell is pretty, pretty famous now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can sell that name to companies uh, who are creating index funds that, that bear the Russell name. In fact, I went to their website the other day. And they have about, just in the ETFs, they have 92 different funds that have the, the Russell in the name. It's quite a few. Now, I'm not saying Russell Investments has it. I'm saying they've licensed the name mm-hmm. 92 different times, apparently, to different fund companies that create these index funds. And so what you have to do, you have to be cognizant of uh, what type of market impact your index is going to have on the marketplace. So if you all of a sudden start including small, really the smallest of the small company stocks in your index fund, it's gonna, it can blow up the stocks, basically, um, because there's not, a lef- not a lef- enough liquidity um, to support 
larger volumes, particularly when the index funds are doing everything at the same time when they reconstitute the fund. And when, in, from Russell's perspective, I mean, like you said, they, they are not managing these funds themselves. Uh, what they're doing is they're, they're creating the, these indexes and they're selling them to fund providers like right. the, the Black Rocks and the Vanguards of the world. Yeah, sure. And if they create uh, indexes, which index funds can't use effectively, no one's going to pay the licensing fees, so Russell will have wasted their time. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they have to be very aware of that. And uh, I wanted to further illustrate that point. So just the other day, um, I looked up the, the uh, market capitalization of, of uh, no, I'm sorry. I looked up Microsoft, which is a very large market capitalization. Mm-hmm. Something around $250 billion, something like that. Very, very large. Um, they're... Their average volume, in other words, how many shares exchanged hands on, this is the day before yesterday, uh, is, is significantly large. In fact, 65 million shares were traded in one day. This is uh, today is Thursday, so this is Tuesday's numbers. So a few, few Microsoft shares got traded. Yeah, 65 million shares of Microsoft changed hands. Um, and the, the bid and ask spread between the two is only one cent. So um, when you, you can buy a stock, you tend to pay a little higher, uh, higher price when you sell a stock through the change, you, pay a little low, you get a little lower price. The difference there is the, what we call the spread. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like the, the Vicarish if you're, if you're a poker player, which I think you are. No, I'm kidding around. Um, but anyway, it's only, man. it's only one cent difference. So that's a 0.02% basically cost to buy the stock, in essence, from the, the spread perspective. And that's, that's as small as a spread can get at this point. Yeah, one I mean, cent. The, the reason you have a spread is so a market maker, they can, if they own Microsoft... You know, or, or they, they can say, look, I'm willing to buy Microsoft from you for, I don't know what the stock price is, say $50, okay? But I'm not willing to sell it to you for $50. I don't make any money. I'll sell it to you for $50 in one cent. Yeah, right. And then I'll just do this enough times. That's how I get paid. Right. So that's how it works on the exchange. The, the exchange is a facilitator, matches up buyers and sellers. Right. And for the exchange to be a business, they have to make money, they charge a spread. Mm-hmm. It's exactly as you described. So that's very reasonable and fair, and all market participants know this. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're aware of this. Yeah, it, it, it's not like these guys are ripping you off. They're no. they're charging you money for a service they're providing you. Makes perfectly good sense. Right. My point is with this particular stock and fund stocks like it is that the spread there is very very small. Mm-hmm. The, the the amount of volume, the amount of trading. You know, if it's one share, is one cent. I mean, the, the exchange is making a lot of money mm-hmm. in one day for for doing this, right? Yeah. Um, so that's how it works for very large stocks. Very easy to do. So the Usually when you have an index fund, they tend to have larger companies for that exact reason because there's a lot more liquidity in the marketplace. And when you get to areas like small company stocks, for example, it's a lot less. And so I have another example of how this works. Uh, I looked up the, the largest single stock in the enhanced U.S. small company index fund, the DFSTX, which I mentioned before. Uh, it happens to be Cabela's, which is a local outdoor sporting goods store. I, right. for the longest time, thought it was an Italian restaurant. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure if it's local. I'm not sure where they're. I know I see stores around. Yeah, they they do have them around here, though. Okay, yeah. So I'm not sure if it's national or whatever. But anyhow, they're the, lar- they're, they're the largest single um, stock in this particular fund out of 2,264. They're number one. Um, yesterday, or the day before, they were trading at, uh, the bid ask was 66.92 versus 66.99. So a seven-cent difference, a seven-cent spread. That's about a 0.1% difference. Which is significantly larger than Microsoft's, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, enormously different. In terms of magnitude, it's significantly different. Yeah. So it costs a lot more to trade in and out of that stock relative to Microsoft mm-hmm. is the essence of that. And so I also looked up the very smallest company in that index fund to give you an idea. And that happens to be, as of Tuesday anyway, South Street Financial Corp. I haven't heard of them. I don't know where they're at. They're pretty small. 
their stock trades for around five bucks a share. Um, and you know, on Tuesday, guess how many shares traded hands? One hundred and fifty. That's a good guess. Uh, but no, answer is zero. Ooh. There were no trades on that day, Tuesday, the day I looked at this anyway. But the previous trade that did go through, the bid ask was uh, $5.10, and the ask was 6 bucks. Wow. She had a $0.90 cent spread. That's <laughs> Out of a $6 stock, that's, uh, that's pretty significant. It's 17%, in fact. Yikes. And so you can't, you can't have uh, an index fund go and create volume because, again, when the index fund says, hey, it's time to re- reshuffle the deck here and reconstitute things, you know, take out the stocks you don't want and put in the stocks you do want, um, that, that costs money, basically, when the spread's that large. And when everybody's doing the exact same thing at the exact same time, it doesn't work so well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the investors in the fund are going to end up paying a lot more for the stock than they need than they ought to, and it will drag returns on the index fund. And another issue you're going to get with uh, these reconstitutions is that they're not secret. Everyone knows they're coming, and you'll get a lot of, uh, you hear more and more about high-frequency traders. Yep. Uh, and these computer algorithms, and what a lot of these these things will do, you have these these shops set up in New York, New Jersey, uh, just so they they can be closer to the exchanges, right? right. Because the the time it takes to execute the trade makes a difference, right? So they they get the the, the you know the proximity matters for these guys, and what they'll do is they'll figure out what uh, what stocks are going to be traded, and they'll essentially front run them. So they'll they'll pick up fractions of cents, uh, just you know, in millions and millions of trades, and the people who end up paying that are the index holders. Right, they get stuck with the the, the result of that. Mm-hmm. Sure, but your your point is exactly right. I want to back up a second. When they when they reconstitute the funds, you're exactly correct. They they get together in a meeting, whoever they are. Yeah, I think I jumped the gun on you there. <laughs> you almost almost stole my thunder. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So they get together, just re- recap. They get together, they figure out, well, these stocks are going to be out, these stocks are going to be in, and then they make this public announcement. And so what do you think happens to the stocks that are going to be going in the index in, in a couple of weeks? Well, obviously, they go up in price, right? Well, we have a, we have a great example of this. Um, Heinz, the ketchup company, is about to be purchased and go private. Uh-huh. Uh, I think Berkshire Hathaway was one of the buyers, and maybe Blackstone, another big private equity firm. Right. And uh, it's going so because it's going to be private. It's going to be taken out of the S and P five hundred. Wow! And it's going to be replaced with General Motors. Okay. And when that announcement was made that day, GM stock went up like five percent. And this is before it's actually in the index. Yes. So the day before the announcement's five percent less. Day of the announcement's five percent more. And then obviously it isn't even in the index yet. Right. So that, that's what they call it's a bit of a run-up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, after the announcement, and they, in fact, there's a there's a cycle that goes up from the day of the announcement to the effective date. The price usually trickles up, up, and up, and up until the effective date. And once it actually is in the fund, guess what happens? I guess it probably drops. Yes, the price drops a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's that's some some extra friction, if you will, that you don't need to have in an index fund. If you can avoid it, obviously, it'd be better to do so. Um, all right, hey, we're coming up on our next break here, and we'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for joining us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at one 800 923 
1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Thanks for joining us, uh, Empirical Investing Radio. And actually, today it's uh, Eric and Ethan. You know, I almost like the sound of that better than Ken and Ethan. I think so. Double E. <laughs> exactly, double E. I think that's great. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today out there. And uh, uh, we were just before the break talking about uh, the problems with index fund reconstitution. And uh, we talked briefly about how the, the, they get together, uh, again, the proverbial day, the index fund committee gets together, they figure out who, what stocks are going to be in the index. And then they make this announcement public, and then obviously at that point stocks go up because everybody's knows they're going to be in the index. Mm-hmm. You gave the great example about GM and Heinz here recently with the S and P, and then that price goes up until it's actually effective date of, of when the stocks have to be in the index. Yeah, and it doesn't even need to be a, a, a full uh, company change like that. It can just yeah. be the weightings can change. True, right? And the same thing is true. We've talked about when companies are added to the index, but obviously there's people stocks being added. There must be stocks being subtracted. Mm-hmm. And most of the time what happens is it's the same thing but in reverse. Right. They make the public announcement and the stocks decline between the time they're, it's announced and then they're actually effectively out of the fund, or out of the index fund. Um, so that obviously uh, it creates, again, some friction, some drag on the returns that otherwise wouldn't be there if you didn't have to do, follow these rigorous rules for what funds are in, what stocks are in the, inde- in the index. Right. It's like you, you get punished on both sides of that because the, the stock price yeah. is going to drop before it right. leaves the index and the stock price that of the stock coming in is going to rise before it gets in the index. Right. So you may think, boy, that's, that's, that's not great. I see what you're saying, Ethan and Eric. That makes good sense. But how do you avoid all that? Well, the truth is there is a way, and it just means not buying the index and using a fund that doesn't track that specific index itself. And there are funds like that. And we mentioned one of the fund companies earlier in the show, uh, DFA or Dimensional Fund Advisors. And specifically in this case, the DFSTX is a symbol of that fund that we talked about. Um, so that's one issue with the, uh, the index fund reconstitution. And there is an, another issue with index funds too. And it happens to go along the same lines is that, A, they only reconstitute typically once a year. So, for example, we, we talked in, in, earlier in the show that we know that small companies 
in general, outperform larger companies. And so let's just talk about small company index funds, for example, for a minute. If you have an index fund that's targeting small companies, you wouldn't you want that fund company, or that fund rather, to have 100% of the stocks inside that fund, small companies? Seems like if you're investing in a small company fund, you'd want it to be filled with you know, small companies. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right? But, but lo and behold, because the market's a very dynamic place, um, prices go up and down, stocks that were small companies at one point in time, maybe large companies later, or maybe they go out of business, right? Yeah, I mean, if they're outperforming the bigger, small companies, you eventually will become small, large companies. Yeah, exactly. So, in fact, we have some data on this, looking at the Russell 2000 Small Company Index through, uh, from 2004 through 2013. Uh, it turns out there's various times during that period in which that index did not contain, and actually never contained, 100% small cap stocks. Uh, there are periods in which it's relatively high, 95 96% of the, the stocks in there were small companies. But there are other times that they're significantly lower than that, maybe around 82 83% small companies. No, no, nowhere close to 100%. It's the Russell mostly small cap index. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a good idea. I don't, I don't know why they don't sell it like that. <laughs> it doesn't quite roll off the tongue as well, maybe. No, that's funny. But yeah, that's exactly the point, though. If small companies indeed lead to outperformance, and specifically in your small cap fund, you want to have all the small caps you can hold. Um, you'd want as much exposure to small companies as possible. Um, and part of the issue is that they only re- reconstitute the fund, well, guess what, once a year. So there's a long time between the, the, the reconstitution date and they get to do it again. And during that period of time, boy, stocks can do all kinds of things and can graduate from the index perhaps. Well, or, or as you said, they can, I mean, you can leave the index one of two ways. You can get too big or you can get too small. Yeah. I mean, and that's, uh, I don't know we've mentioned that at this point, but there's a reason that small companies tend to outperform large companies. What, what would that be? Well, they're riskier. Oh. I mean, the chance that Microsoft goes out of business is, is pretty small. Pretty small, yeah, I'd agree with you. Um, the chance that Apple, that Exxon, any of these actually goes bankrupt, it's, it's not large. Well, how, how about South Street Financial Corp? Is it, do you think that's more likely, I mean, if we're to, on the risk scale, that'd be riskier than those other companies you mentioned? Well, they are a financial titan, I, I think. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's something like that, it, it's a lot riskier endeavor. No question, right? No question about it. So you, you would expect to receive a little higher risk premium for a company that's, that is riskier. Right. That's true. And so what the DFA does, Dimensional Fund Advisors do, they don't have 100% exposure at times either. They may have a little cash in the fund or uh, there are other market factors that, that must be taken into consideration. But they generally have a lot higher exposure, a lot more exposure uh, in their small company portfolio uh, to small cap stocks relative to the index. In fact, over time anyway, um, nine, 11 months out of the year, other than the reconstitution month, uh, the, the Russell 2000 has about 88% exposure to small cap, where the DFA has 96%. Hmm. And uh, in the reconstitution month, well, guess what? The, uh, the index gets up to 96%, and DFA averages on the same month anyway, 97%. So about the same in the reconstitution. About, yeah. It seems like the Russell fund diverges. Right. So you ask, you're asking me, what's the big difference, Ethan? Who cares? Why, why are you belaboring this point so much? You're talking about index fund reconstitution, it's the most boring thing on, on the planet. Well, here's maybe, this might pique your interest. This is where it gets good. I'm listening. Okay. Thank you very much for the drum roll. Right on cue. Let's compare returns. Let's look at the returns. That's where it really matters, right? That's what we all care about. Mm. Ultimately, how do you squeeze out more return from, from this type of fund relative to the index? If you can do that, then Ethan, you got a point. If you don't, then we don't need to talk about it anymore. 
<laughs> Why did you waste our time? Exactly. Actually, I have bad news. Uh, just to waste your time. No, we didn't, didn't waste your time. We have real, real data here. So let's look at the last 10 years as an example. You've got the Russell 2000 versus the uh, DFA Enhanced Small Company U, uh, Index, the DFSTX, which I mentioned before. 10 years ending March 31st, uh, 2003. The index, not bad, 11.58%. It's pretty solid. No one's complaining about that return, excellent return. Better than, by, by and large, the vast majority of, of traditional approach small cap stock funds, right? And this is an index itself, not an index fund, which right. will underperform a little bit because there are fees. Good even, if they're, even if they're low fees, they're still fees. Good point. The DFSTX, uh, 12.73. So a difference of 1.15% per year. Yeah, after fees. Yeah, this net, this net, of net return. Net of all costs. And that's good for the 10-year. But what about, Ethan, what if you just go take it, take it since inception? How long has the fund, the, the DFA fund, been around? Well, it turns out it's been around since 1982. 1992, so a long, long chunk of time. And what's the return difference over that period? Well, the Russell Index, 8.99%. Not terrible, not bad. But guess what? The other fund, 10.39%. Wow. A difference of 1.4% per year. That was perfectly executed. That was well timed. Here's the thing. If you invested $100,000 back in 1992 in that fund, uh, you'd have now almost $800,000 and if you invested the same 100000 bucks in the Russell, you would have, again, the index, not the index fund, you'd have $610,000. And that's a difference, for those of you who can't quickly do the math because I'm talking so fast, uh, a difference of $188,000 just by choosing one fund over the other, and they're both in small cap. Well, that's only good if you like money. <laughs> I agree. The crowd loves it. <laughs> I agree. Well, they should. They should love it. So that's the main thing. Um, and there are, are lots of uh, other examples like this. Um, out there with this type of approach, the enhanced indexing approach. That's the power of it. And right. you can do that with not just this asset class, but guess what? There's many, many other asset classes that have the same idea uh, in force uh, with them as well. Uh, we are coming up at the end of our whirlwind show today. Wait, no applause? Sean, Simon? No, I'm kidding. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of us here at the uh, Empirical Headquarters in downtown Seattle, feel free to give us a call directly at, at 206-923-3474, and feel free to ask for Eric or Ethan, and we'll be happy to speak with you. Thanks for joining us, and have a great day. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 